It's a great pleasure to be back at uh, 4HP. Always a pleasure to give a talk here, especially to, to a bunch like your good selves, ladies and gentlemen, who may, I suspect, know rather more about <laughs> these aeroplanes than, than I do. But I can say that I suspect few of you will have sat for many hours at queue going through the National Archive and the public record. In some respects, this was a, a, a journey of re-exploration as far as I was concerned, because some, some 30 years ago, uh, I began a PhD on post-war civil aerospace policy, which I rapidly realized in the absence of archive material, I couldn't present as a doctorate. But I nevertheless published it. And coming back to the 1950s has been something of a well, it's a treat in, in semi-retirement. Because although, I have to confess, the, the overall picture of this period hasn't changed to my mind, it, dredging through the archive did generate some wonderful detailed vignettes, particularly of the interministerial disputes and, and arm wrestlings that went on during this period. I indeed found a few smoking guns that I couldn't prove in my book from, uh, from public materials. And there are a few that are still elusive, as, uh, as you will see. What I propose to do is briefly encapsulate the period from 1945 up to 1955, which will encompass one or two very familiar pictures um, to an audience as experienced as your good selves in, in British post-war aviation um, history. And then I'll focus on um, the saga of the DH-121 Trident and the VC-10. Roughly that order, although I will start, kick off with the VC-10, move on to Trident, and then come back to the VC-10. As you'll see, there is a structure to the history here. I will not gratuitously try to insult artefacts from the British um, aviation um, history, BOAC, I think, as we will see in a moment over the next 40 minutes, deserves some sympathy for the outcomes that we will present. I think BEA, to anticipate what I'll say later, deserves a bit of a kicking. And in all of the great turning points, all of the great what might have beens of British post-war um, aerospace history, I think it is the trident which is the real turning point, or the worse, in that history. But anyway, let's press on. It is a, a saga of the relationship between, on the one hand, the British aircraft industry, and on the other, the nationalised air corporations, BEA and BOAC. We will find, obviously, governmental figures flitting in and out of the story. Many of them will have the same face, but perhaps a different responsibility as we move through the decade. But it is, in a sense, a very small community. And, and there are nameless officials which, who's, who, who would continuously come up in the, in the documentation throughout this period as playing their own inimitable role in cocking things up. <laughs> but I, I will hope at the end of the lecture you'll perhaps be able to make up your own minds as to who was chief cocker-upper of this particular period. The post-war period was, in a sense, a, a, a straight heritage, inheritance of the wartime 
I was called it self-denial. 1939, Britain decided they could not build commercial aircraft, transport aircraft they would buy or rely upon stuff they would buy from the United States. Post-war, we would finish up with a few transports, the York, the Lancastrian, and of course, big reliance on, on the DC-3. Um, I think I should have put on this picture the, Vi the Viking as well, which, was a, which, which, is a mis which is missing from my story here. But the Viking was actually a surprisingly good piece of, uh, of um, inter interregnum engineering. But we were stuck with this interregnum, this problem. We also had a big aircraft industry, and it had to be filled. But BOAC rebuilding also had to fill a gap, and it would fill that gap, as you would see, with some very nice-looking American airplanes. I pause for a bit of a, a glimmer of joy at seeing a, seeing a constellation up there. Always a lovely airplane to see. Dollars, of course, were in short supply, and this, was grudge, this fleet was grudgingly wrung out of, uh, out of the Treasury in the expectation that in due time they would be replaced or if not replaced, supplemented by a new generation of British-designed commercial aircraft, which was a whole package of socialist-inspired planning. This was the 1943-44 Brabazon program outcome, although some of these aircraft up there, uh, including, the, the, including the, the Princess and the Britannia, weren't technically part of the, the Brabazon program itself. It was a patchy record, as I think we all, we, all, we, all, we, all, we all appreciate. Most of the Brabazon program were commercial, if not technical, failures. There were standouts, and we know exactly what the standouts were, the Viscount and the Comet. And, of course, I think we, we shouldn't overlook the good old de Havilland Dove as well, but that is not part of this story. It wasn't a cheap program. Um, all the numbers, by the way, have been revalued up to 2017 prices. So we're talking about a not insignificant commitment of public money to a post-war program of reconstruction and revitalization that would sustain the civil aircraft industry while also the, the military side was rebuilt, was being rebuilt and reconfigured in the light of the new technologies. Uh, and I think, in a sense, that the fact that the returns to this program were almost entirely brought about by returns on the Viscount gave rise to the fact that the incoming Tories in 5051 were not really pleased with the policy. There had also been a major technical failure with the, with the Avro Tudor, which had led, uh, 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 led uh, Hanbury Williams to report that something had to be done about the way in which government interfered and intervened in the whole process of specifying and developing commercial aircraft. And that, in a sense, brings us to the start of the story. <coughs> An unfamiliar role. A man responsible for the promotion rather than the cancellation of programs. <laughs> he will turn up again in our story. But ostensibly, coming to power in 1951, the Conservative government was going to introduce a new approach to the development or the sponsorship of commercial aircraft, leaving aside the requirements of research and development, which they were still prepared to sponsor, <coughs> 
If we were going to develop any large aircraft of note, this would have to be done increasingly on the back of private venture finance, which, of course, would be more viable given the success of aeroplanes like the Viscount. Money, oodles of money, would be rolling into the industry to be made available for commercial development. There would, however, be some indirect assistance that would be afforded to the aircraft companies. The air corporations, BEA and BOAC, receiving public money through their annual vote and their equipment planning that was authorised by the government, by the Treasury, they would be encouraged, if not required, there's always a certain amount of ambiguity about the extent to which the air corporations had to fly the flag, or buy the flag, whichever you want to call it, buy or fly. But if push came to shove, the air corporation chairman would know that the government, the minister, the sponsoring minister for the aviation industry, would be able to direct as he saw fit. So the air corporations were increasingly expected to provide the launch orders for aircraft. They also carried a not inexpensive burden of proving the prototypes in service. Uh, I'm not quite sure what we would call this these days, but proving, I think, would have been making sure the damn things could take off when they were iced up and all the other little niggles that these days are ironed out in a development program before they even get sent into service. If we were really lucky, the RAF would also see an opportunity to buy or to even to sponsor, God forbid, a transport aircraft that itself would be part of the commercial um, trade. And, of course, the one that they did inherit in 1951, the V-1000 VC-7, was precisely that, a military transport that could conceivably be also launched at at an appropriate time as a commercial airliner. <clears throat> Who was playing on the other side? Well, there was Lord Chota Douglas of Kirtleside, BEA's chairman for most of this period. So General Gerald Adelange, who was BOEC's chairman, again up until, very crucially, 1960. Two very different men. Douglas, very well experienced former military man, very hard, very determined, and as we will see in the course of this little lecture, one of the stalwart figures defending the interests of his corporation against necessarily the interests of <coughs> the sponsoring aircraft, aircraft industry ministry. Delanger, a more, I see, relaxed man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. He certainly saw his role as being much more of a public servant a role which would encompass seeing both sides of the industrial requirement, obviously supporting the interests of BOAC, but he was also attuned to his wider responsibilities and that of his airline for at least encouraging development of an indigenous aircraft industry. Two very different perspectives on the procurement process. Overarching all of this early part of the period, of course, was the failure of the, uh, the technical failure of the, of the comet. 
There's no doubting the psychological impact that this had on the industry and on the sponsoring ministries. I'm not going to go in, not need to go into detail here, but it was the expectation that Comet, the Comet 1, would eventually evolve quite rapidly into a transatlantic carrier and sweep the world. Indeed, as many of you know, there were already, at this point, orders from Pan Am, which had shaken the American industry quite markedly. There was the government confronted with a major failure. And in spite of the private venture policy, it was forced, it was required, it decided that it would bail out de Havilland for all sorts of broad strategic reasons. Not cheaply either. But one of the costs of bailing out de Havilland was to deny de Havilland the opportunity of an immediate launch of a longer-range, larger version of the Comet, which would be eventually Comet 3 and Comet 4. A significant delay in the process of securing a British lead in jet-powered airliners. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here with, about the V-1000 or VC-7, only to say that, again, this looked like a winner. Vickers thought it would, could be developed into a winner, but in the end, BOAC had doubts. They were not going to put their money into this program unless the VC-1000 V military transport was into full development. Short end of the story, it wasn't, and was cancelled in in April 1955. Again, not a cheap program. It was left to these beasts to sweep into the marketplace. At the time, uh, the government had said there's nothing to really worry about. We had things covered. It would be eventually the Comet 4, eventually Britannia. Those would be the British civil aircraft that BOEC would need and indeed wanted after the, V1000, the V1000 program collapsed. Unfortunately, the world did not stand still waiting for the UK to pull itself out of its crisis and its problems. The Americans, particularly Boeing, went steaming into the new generation. Again, I'm not going to go into detail about the American approach, but nevertheless, look at those dates. They are impressive in terms of cadence of development. And there are distinct links between those, three uh, those four airplanes, as you well know. This was what they thought the future was going to be for BOEC. Britannia and Comet. And at the cancellation, some people thought this was going to be misguided. And BOAC will come back wanting American airplanes, which, of course, is exactly what they did. The irony upon irony, of course, is that the Boeing 707 they, choose, they chose also had the Conway engine, which would have made the V-1000 a much more viable prospect for an Atlantic carrier. But significantly, permission to buy the 707 was also dependent upon committing themselves to supporting and launching an aircraft specifically for what they called the Empire routes. These were the hot and high routes of, of southern Africa and out to the Far East. They would require special requirements, particularly very good runway performance, 
they wouldn't necessarily have the, the size and, ca and, and load capacity of a true transcontinental airliner. Uh, as Sir George Edwards later said, if they'd wanted a transatlantic airliner, we'd have built the V-1000 for them, or the VC-7. Now, the purchase of this was, was, was no great problem in, in some respects. You had a, a situation where BOAC was almost required to support a British product for some of its specialty tests, for some of its route requirements. Only one company was prepared in the end to come up with the design, and that was Vickers. De Havilland, of course, was order combat, trying to sort out the Comet for the transport for, tra for the RAF and get going with further development of the aeroplane. Vickers, on the other hand, was raring to go with this one. As a, a BOAC chairman who would come and perhaps suffer career-wise for the decision, Matthew Slattery, Sir Matthew Slattery, he said later, there was only one company prepared to embark upon such an aeroplane, and that was Vickers. We now get to the stage where you could have any color so long as it was black. You have got to have a British aircraft, and there is only one possible aircraft. I am quite sure that the corporation were quite free to make any choice they liked. A Treasury official actually <laughs> rather more sardonically suggested whether the VC-10 was the best aircraft available for BOAC was not questioned at the time. Quite crucially, Vickers had in mind the basic requirement for developing the VC-10, money. And they reckoned that they could produce a suitable aircraft at 43 million quid a copy but only on condition that the airline ordered 35 up front, uh, an order which was later um, increased to 42 when BOAC discovered that they wanted the VC-10 for a transatlantic operation. But 35 aeroplanes, 43 million quid a copy. That was the baseline for Vickers' operation. On that, they could fund development. As the Minister of Aviation said at the official said at the time, 35 might have been a bit high, Vickers made it clear this was the minimum needed to launch the aircraft as a private venture. The size of the order was agreed with equal haste. But it was vindication of the government policy or of the emerging policy. So I, 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 you'll see in a minute that we, there are still issues about funding commercial aircraft through the government. But the Vickers decision in '56 was, this was right on. We're going to get a new aircraft fully funded by the company. Okay, it was funded in a sense by taxpayers' money through the vote for BOAC, but it was at least starting on the premise that the thing would break even. That was what the 35 was going to guarantee. The Treasury didn't get much of a look in. Uh, according to officials, the first the Treasury knew about the order was a letter to the Chancellor dated 2nd of May '57 which explained how innovative the program was, and it was competitive with the Americans, and Vickers would develop it as a private venture. Done deal. It was then the biggest single contract for a British aircraft, worth, in our money, some 1.7 billion quid. 
We were talking also about 208 million quid coming out of BOAC for proving costs, but again, put that to one side. Vickers reckoned that their development costs would be something in the region of 165 million, and they expected they would get something in the region of, or needed, a total of 80 aircraft to break even. But they confidently expected that would be made up through exports. Neither the Ministry of Supply nor the Ministry of Transport seemed to be too bothered that design would need further development if it was going to be competitive on the Atlantic route. The obsession with the Empire routes was fine for now. Apparently there were reports also that BOAC Engineering had their doubts too. But everything was the fair wind. Everything was in, or stars were in alignment. Great call for a new government policy. Now, we move on to the next, as it were, phase. One of the fascinating things about this whole period is, is the attitude towards jet aircraft or to jet airliners. There was a good, solid economic case for delaying the introduction, particularly of short-haul, medium-haul jets. Turboprops were infinitely superior on the kind of sector stages that you would use or expect in Europe. Exactly why the Viscount did so well. It was a bloody good aeroplane, and it flew its load very efficiently. And the economics of, of, of jet transport for short to medium haul really were dodgy. They still are to some extent, as, as many of you still fully appreciate. And I think BOS, BEA would have quite cheerfully have gone along with the, with the, with the, the, the Vican, and of course they put in an order for a larger um, four-engine uh, product, the Vanguard, which itself would run into problems subsequently. But that's another story. And they would also be prepared to wait in due time for a suitable Comet to turn up, which would be the Comet 3. What really put the cat amongst the pigeons was our, were our friends across the channel who launched the Caravelle as a short-medium-haul jet aircraft. And even as a prototype, airlines began to appreciate the interest that passengers would have in a smooth and comfortable ride. So bugger the economics, passenger appeal began to percolate the industry, the airline industry. And BEA in 56 found itself short of a suitable airliner, anticipating requirements into the late, 60s, late 50s, early 60s. We will go out and launch a British aircraft to match the Caravelle. One of the interesting sidelights of this is that Many of you know had a substantial chunk of British technology embedded in it, from the front end of the fuselage cockpit through the engine. And it was proposed as a suggestion that BEA might buy the Caravelle, to which Patriot Douglas, Lord Douglas, said, "We are not going to buy a French product. It is not patriotic, and we will buy and build our own." But okay, that's another story. 
broadly speaking, we finish up with two contending aeroplanes. Forgive me if I move on too quickly. Two products came up before, leaving aside the, 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 the comment about if we're, if we're dealing independently of the other bit. We have de Havilland coming back into the, into, the, into the new aircraft build with the 121, but significantly Hawker Sidley wanted to get into the civil business and paired up with Bristol to offer the Bristol 200. Now, this is where, in a sense, industrial politics and the politics of the airline industry begins to, begins to show its, 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 its interrelationship. Because at this point in 1957, the government was beginning to move towards another strand of policy. That the aircraft industry was too fragmented. It needed consolidation. But being conservative, and un unlike those socialistic, dirigistic French, we will allow industry to find its own set of partnerships. But we will nudge and encourage through whatever power we have over contracts to get the right kind of grouping together. Easy in the military sense. A few years later, we would have the marriage of inconvenient cause of the English electorate bitter to link up to build the GHR troops. Not a happy pairing, but we'll definitely a different story. But this one looked a great opportunity to encourage BEA to go down the right direction. So, you, in, you have one captain, Aubrey Jones, the new, the new Minister of, uh, of Supply, replacing Duncan Sands, who had moved over to Defence. Now, Aubrey was a, a very strong liberal Tory, i.e. economic liberal Tory. He really wanted to pull out of the, the business entirely, but he recognised there would have to be some encouragement for industrial development. Better that we had companies and an industry, sorry, better that we had companies and an industry that was sufficiently strong in its own right to build stuff and to finance stuff, particularly commercial airliners. Jones and the Ministry of Supply had a very strong view that Hawker Sidley and Bristol were the group that BEA ought to choose. They were bigger, not necessarily better. Hawker Sidley was an absolute mess, but as we would later discover. Bristol wasn't that much better in terms of organisation. De Havilland, however, had the crucial advantage of wishing and wanting to build an aeroplane that their customer wanted. Hawker Sidley and Bristol had the temerity to suggest that there were perhaps other people they ought to, <laughs> they ought to discuss with, other airlines that might have an interest in this kind of aircraft. They would build an aeroplane that was guaranteed, or at least would have a good chance of winning a broader spectrum of orders. De Havilland, not unreasonably, reeling from the shock of the comet crash, the carrying the, 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 the problems of managing the bailout terms, they were desperate in their own right to get the design they had for BEA. And while they started out with a design that was very similar to the Bristol 200, gradually, inexorably, they adjusted their design to suit the specific interests of BEA. 
Interestingly enough, as this treasury um, quotation would, would, would suggest, there were problems in getting enough funds to build the project. BEA order in itself was going to be an important launch order, but neither of the competing um, products were really, or their companies, weren't really convinced that there was sufficient headroom in the BEA order that was emerging at the time. And thus they were looking or harking back to the old MOS policy of supporting and buying prototypes. And for about nine months, 12 months, there was a sort of three-legged, three, four-legged game between the MOS, the Ministry of Transport, that was heavily supporting BEA's case for the Trident, the MOS, which was much more keen to see the Bristol Hawker Siddeley design. The MOS even came up with a spiffing idea that rather than buying a prototype, which had been the Brabazon approach, they would advance money for non-recurring costs and get them back through royalties on sales. Well, what a spiffing idea. Even the Treasury thought this wasn't a bad idea because it linked... It wasn't money being thrown at a prototype which could be going down the drain. At least you get something coming back. The companies had some risk in the program, and there was a, a, a continuous likelihood, a likelihood that there would be a return on sales. This is the first recorded incidence of launch aid, what we call now repayable launch investment. One of my little nuggets that I found in the files. It would come back with a vengeance in 1960 as part of the restructuring of the industry and the bargains that were struck then. But this was the first recorded R launch aid suggestion. In the event, wasn't required, wasn't needed. Because BEA accepted and announced that they would buy and keep the Trident and would buy it in sufficient numbers in order to pay for development. The squabbles were really intense. There were some insulting letters flashing between the Ministry of Transport and the Ministry of Supply. Arnold Hall, a, 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 good op a sharp operator, had come from the Royal Aircraft Establishment to try and shake Hawker Siddeley Group into to some semblance of commercial order. He was forced into <laughs> this, this public statement that we weren't, they weren't about to try to foist an inadequate aircraft on BEA. Because BEA was saying all the time, this is the one we want. We want the DH-121 Trident. This is the airplane that suits us. We don't want any of that rubbish that's coming out of Bristol and Hawker Siddeley. So there, was, there, there, were, there were quite a lot of, of, of sparks flying in the press. Uh, embarrassing to the government, embarrassing to the, to the two ministries. And... And de Havilland shrewdly moved to remove at least one leg of the Hawker Siddeley Bristol campaign. That they offered a consortium, a bit of rationalization with Hunting and Ferry. Not particularly big players. Indeed, these were candidates for relegation in the MOS's view. But nonetheless, it was something that, you know, politically, de Havilland had outfoxed the Ministry of Supply and Hawker Siddeley. 
We will provide, we will launch this as a private venture, tick. We will also encourage a degree of rationalization, tick. BEA desperately wants our program because we've tailored it to their, exactly to their specification. Tick, three ticks. 25 aircraft worth half a, half a, half a billion or 10 billion in, in contemporary money. Another big chunk of cash to develop a British civil aircraft. Proudly summarized by Aubrey Jones in a clear statement of policy in May 1958. This had been based on a, a, an interesting uh, working group. I call this Plowden before Plowden, which is an interesting piece of internal work, never published, but very interesting paper nonetheless. We're also seeing the aftermath of the Sandys White Paper, which had driven a hole through much of the military program. There would be a virtue in all of this self-funding stuff. Not only would it be self-funding, it also would provide the basis for a future revival of an export-led British aircraft industry. And we would also be able to use a bit of carrot and stick to nudge and to adjust the industry into a size and shape that would be beneficial to all concerned. And we would also have, not forgetting, special projects that we would directly fund as research activities. The first two were a, a, a preliminary work on a supersonic transport and the ferry rotodyne. Future reference, ladies and gentlemen, I have just completed my archive research on the rotodyne program. Watch the space. Fine, there we go. Two aeroplanes proceeding nicely. Uh, one thing I, I have to say, that the, the development programs, were, uh, both these aircraft were, 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 were good. They didn't have the same problems that, uh, uh, that hit the Britannia and the, and, and the Vanguard. <coughs> Partly because they were, were using jets and not a big turboprops, but nonetheless, let's leave that aside. Now, this is when I... I will lay down my cards on this one. This was the turning point. This was, I think, the great mistake. If I can find the quotes. The other quotes. No, they're all up there, in fact. BEA and de Havilland, we're working pretty well together. Then BEA takes another look at its forecasts, its traffic forecasts, and has a little panic. <coughs> the long and the short of it is that the aircraft, the DH-121, with its big engine, big fuselage, was going to be too big for BEA's immediate requirements. There was also, uh, uh, well... BEA have always been odd about this, by the way. And it, it, you, you will see echoes of this particular view into the 1950s, 1960s, and 70s in, in the debate over which Airbus to buy. That BEA claimed that it was different from the rest of Europe in its sector lengths and all the rest of it. But for whatever reason and whatever rationale, they demanded de Havilland cut the design spec. Effectively, taking, a, taking a, a third out of the aeroplane. At the same time, Boeing had been sniffing around for an equivalent. Indeed, uh, de Havilland's had actually discussed part of their development with Boeing uh, during the 57, 56, 57. 
And I think Boeing had a very good idea that this particular airplane was a goer. And they duly launched the 727. At the outset, it was offering an aircraft at least as big as the original 121 specification. Their view was that if it, was a bit em if it flew empty initially, it would soon fill up. Uh, a design philosophy that would become pretty well ingrained in future um, concepts of civil aviation. Never, never, never build small aeroplanes if you think the market is going to expand. Always better to crop than to stretch. Always easier to stretch as well in, in that respect. And the, 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 the short of it is that Boeing did run away with the market. Now, there's a long and uh, indeed f continuing saga of the Trident, but I'll, I'm going to leave the Trident at this point, that it was effectively ruined as a commercial aircraft in a wider market by this decision. The de Havilland team, and I, I spoke to, uh, uh, some of you might remember Derek Brown, a, a lovely man who, who helped me, guided me through, uh, through my introduction to um, the industry, was one of the, the senior designers at this time, or at least well, part, uh, part of the design team. And they were all told, keep quiet, don't object, we need this order, so don't disturb us. We, and indeed, the, the, the managing director of, uh, uh, of de Havilland, Audrey Burke, really clamped down on, on any dissent in the company about the, about the cropping of the, of the 121. The Ministry of Supply officials were fully aware of the implications. They knew that BEA had, had this little creed occur, but they were generally concerned that the aircraft was going to lose a wider market. As the Ministry of Supply official said, the, the aircraft is evidently tailored to meet the needs of BEA with predominantly short stage network. Other operators may require longer stages which would necessitate an increase in gross weight. BEA is unusual among large operators in having stages longer than 14 or above. So they were concerned. And looking back on this decision, MOS officials in 1965, or the Treasury officials said, BEA, for whom the Trident was tailor-made, have changed their minds about the version they would need for future orders with bewildering rapidity. In terms of equity, however, the party that really should suffer is BEA, who have got everyone into this muddle. Because sorting out the Trident in the early 60s, trying to get something that would <coughs> capture a bit of the market back, proved a horrendous task for the Ministry, or then the Ministry of Aviation. And it was always catching up or trying to catch up with the, with the, with the, with the, with the 727, and it failed. This was a turning point, I think, in British post-war aviation. Okay, let me just final, last 10 minutes, last five minutes, 10 minutes. Pick up with the other half of the story. BC-10 motoring along as a program. Not bad, working well. Then Vickers begins to encounter some very heavy weather. The Vanguard was not selling. Their own cost estimations of the VC-10 program were woefully inadequate.
There was also a recognition that the specific attractiveness of a hot and high Empire route aircraft really was not going to cut the mustard. In part because American foreign aid was increasing the, the length of most runways in Africa at a very convenient time for the arrival of the 707 and DC-8. What a surprise. So any specific edge that the VC-10 might have had on those sectors was rapidly eroding. So Vickers not unnaturally turned their attention to the Blue Ribbon route, the one where you could make an airliner to fly profitably, the Atlantic. But in order to do this, you needed a bigger, more powerful version of the VC-10 which would in, in due time become known as the Super VC-10. And of course, in order to facilitate this development, they wanted BOAC to restructure its order. And it was getting a bit tight. Uh, uh, a Cooper's uh, Brothers audit for the Ministry of Supply in 1959 Revealed that BOAC revealed that, or claimed that Vickers were about to lose 312 million on the program, and such was the the this dire nature of the of, of the of the problem. The chairman, Lord Knowles, came straight out with it. If the government didn't come up with funding, Vickers would collapse and that this was, in a sense, an essential step. Bearing in mind, ladies and gentlemen, we were also into what you might call the second phase of industrial rationalisation. We hadn't quite got the Sandys Marriage Bureau up and running yet. That would come in October 59 when Sands moved across from defence to aviation, the new Ministry of Supply. But nevertheless, it rapidly became a condition of mergers that the government would move to support product, and primarily civil product. Bearing in mind also at the time, English Electric and Vickers were beginning to come together on a merger. Indeed, at one stage, it was, as you, some of you remember from an earlier lecture, it might have involved uh, included de Havilland. But it was a clear condition. We need to sort out the old programs before we can move forward into a new world of rationalized self, well, if not self-funding, at least more financially stable companies. This was the, uh, the Super VC-10. You can see it's a, a stretch version of the, of the original. Sands accepts backdating, in a sense, because he sold the new program in 1960 as we will reintroduce support for aircraft, for civil aircraft, launch aid. We will concentrate orders on the new groups. Sorry, Hanley Page, as you remember. But there is a legacy. And although there's nothing new about the VC-10 or the Trident, because it was clear that the Havilland also were looking for cash to fund their eventual merger into, 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 into uh, uh, what became the Hawker Siddeley, Hawker Siddeley Group, Hawker Siddeley Aviation. They would backdate it that monies would be provided in some form. Oh! Oh, battery! 
Okay. <laughs> I feel exactly the same. <laughs> Again, let's cut it short to some extent. <clears throat> We might provide some backward, la backward launch investment, but again, BOAC would have to carry most of the burden. And there's no doubting, although I've not been able to find the proof, there's enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that Delanger, just as he was giving over to Sir Basil Smallpiece and Matthew Slattery as head of BOAC, he caved in to Sands. And as... Our del delightful man, whom I interviewed, De um, Dennis De Havilland, no, no, uh, Dennis Havilland, no, no relation. He was quite blunt about it. We bullied Delanger on the VC10 order. He was proud of it. That VC10 would order, would be restructured. They would get a bigger aeroplane and they would have to pay more for it. The only problem is that BOAC in the end couldn't afford it. And we have the long and sorry story. I've called this bankruptcy because I was told off by um, an august member of the, of the society that BOAC never could have gone bankrupt. Technically, yes, because it was a nationalised, it was an air corporation. But effectively, it was in a real dire strait. Uh, in 1963, it was running a deficit of 1.5 billion quid in today's money. Not all of it was due to uh, over-provision on the Super VC-10, but a goodly chunk was. The government sacked Slattery and Makepeace, who, interestingly, if you ever... If, I mean, this is, this, they gave evidence to, the select, to a select committee before they were sacked, and things seemed to be... They said, going great. A, bit, a few problems, but going great. They were then sacked. Nine months later, they give evidence to the same select committee and they badmouth Delanger and Duncan Sands. Amazing transformation in evidence. That's when you get all the comments about Delanger had his choice that he, he flunked. <clears throat> so the Corbett report was, was requested and it <coughs> delved deeply into the, into the finances and problems affecting BOAC. Never published although, of course, now you can read it at, uh, at, at Q. And they appointed a hard man to take over at BOEC, Sir Giles Guthrie. Some of the, I think there are some people in this room might just remember Sir Giles Guthrie. <coughs> and quite frankly, he was going to cancel the whole bloody order. The Super VC-10, no. We'll have just have more Boeings. Bite the bullet, more Boeings. In the event, the government said, no, we can't do this, it, it, would, it would shatter Vickers. It would destroy the, the then emerging British Aircraft Corporation because if they, if they bankrupted Vickers, uh, the, one of the biggest pillars of, the, of their prized rationalisation programme would fall apart. <clears throat> so it was, in a sense, again, onto a hiding to nothing. But Guthrie this time got his pound of flesh. He would continue with the programme he would accept the VC-10. He would also get another tranche of Boeings, 707s. And he would demand an official direction. There was no 
getting off the hook here on the part of the government. They would have to tell him that they had to t he, he had to take this aeroplane against his own better commercial judgment. Interestingly enough, the, the whole politics of direction and, uh, and such like begins to come to a head generally throughout the 1960s as eventually also gets involved with the BEA direction, directed purchases of the, uh, of, uh, of the Trident III and, of course, of the early Airbus. <coughs> but any form of direction would have a clear pound of flesh exacted from the Treasury. And eventually, of course, the, the, the newly revitalized British Airways would have complete freedom to buy what the hell it wanted, from, at least from the 19, late 1970s onwards. But there is an irony. Not exactly a, 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 a wonderful product in the sense of being a commercial success, but BOAC made what they could of the aeroplane. I think some would say make a you know, silk purse out of a, out of a pig's ear. Unfair, I think. I, I, I think there are plenty of, plenty of people here would say that the VC-10 was a bloody lovely aeroplane in some respect. And they made money out of it because it proved to be a hugely popular aeroplane. Shades of what, of course, they would do, BA would do later with Concorde. Get given it for tuppence and make money out of it. Wonderful deal, at least for, for, BOA, for BA and BOAC. And it was a winner. I just liked having, the, I've used this picture before of Marlena Dietrich's legs. It's a, it's a, it's a cracking photo. It's a cracking <laughs> slide. <coughs> well done, BOAC Public Relations. But of course, I in a sense, this was the end of, 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 a, of a, a story. The British designed, British built, civil aircraft. I know there was the BAC-111 that would fly around. I know there was also the Hawker Siddeley 146 that would come. But in the top end of the business, this was the future. Look at the numbers. I've I, I used these figures before. The first generation jets, the Americans in the end sold 3,500 of them. We sold 928. The French, 280. These numbers, of course, when you get into the the main program of Airbus. That's, where the, that's when we started to make money out of commercial aircraft with a vengeance, selling lots of wings rather than building whole aeroplanes. Contributing to design, building great factories, keeping lots of clever men and women in the design of aeroplanes, but not a British product. I'm an economist, or at least sort of economist. I'm not a sentimentalist. Tough. It has lots of flags on the tail. But remember, Airbus is making money, or at least it was up until the A380, but that's another story. <laughs> with that, I will leave you with the story, and you can make your own mind up as to who really were the villains. I think BEA did deserve a kicking. Others may have been less deserving of blame and opprobrium from the likes of Derek Wood.